This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your attention. I hope I can be uh, equal to it. So this is a talk about uh, sabotage in Russia. For me, it's a part of a broader question. Is revolution going to happen? Um, and right now, that seems like a really unlikely uh, uh, you know, option for how things will go. But in a way, that is surprising. Um, there's probably about one in every five Russians has relatives in Ukraine or Ukrainian heritage, myself uh, included. And, um, and never mind the economic uh, aspects of this, of this war, the rising prices, really difficult for, uh, working, for working people in Russia. Um, uh, people's salaries are already being held back, so people in industry, there's many more strikes than there were last year at this time, sort of we're comparing the level of stability. We can see that things are changing. Um, uh, and for some commentators on Russia, you know, they've described this as an economic freefall, uh, that there is no turning back from this. Um, and we also see a lot of shuffling of the elites in all sectors. So in business, uh, in the, within the regime, within the army. Um, and so there are some indications that, uh, Things are taking a new direction, but it's not revolution. And it's been six months of this atrocious uh, war, this like crime against humanity that's happening right now. Um, so this idea that there isn't much of a, a movement, there isn't much of a resistance, is partly a question of perception. And so a lot of what I'll talk about today is media um, and discourses on the in the state-affiliated media, the mainstream, um, and I should mention the Ukrainian media too, which has been watching the events in Russia, cataloging practically every suspicious uh, fire that happens in a major, major industrial site, uh, strikes, um, ra- uh, train derailments, which will be a really important topic for me to, today, uh, um, and arguing that there is grassroots resistance. So as far as many Ukrainian journalists uh, and sort of political figures go, they believe that there is revolution brewing. Um, and I will also aim to introduce you to this anti-war movement, sort of give you a sense of the lay of the land. 
Um, and I'll argue that their organizing tactics are really fundamentally different from this um, prior pre-full-scale war era of activism in Russia. Um, but even with that corrected record, let's say I introduce you to the players, right? we talk about the situation, we talk about the scale of sabotage that's happening right now and this kind of grassroots um, appears to be a grassroots phenomenon rather than organized by the Ukrainian army or secret agents or something like that. Even when we talk about that, it's still worth reflecting on why um, these groups remain so marginalized, why this seems to be a phenomenon that's so marginalized. And it's not, I, I've said already that it's partly a question of media perception, it's not only that. Um, we remember, of course, that a hundred years ago, Russia was the country that had a socialist uh, revolution. And why isn't this possible a hundred years later? Why does it seem so, so remote from us today? And for, for you know, Russian activists would agree with this um, assessment, that's worth thinking about. So I actually only have like half legitimate authority to speak on that question. Um, I'm not a political scientist and I'm not a sociologist. Uh, my field is cultural studies. But actually, the answers that people give to this are, they're sort of about culture, about Russian, um, about depoliticization uh, in Russian culture in the past uh, 100 years that has contributed to this scenario where revolution is, appears to be nearly, nearly foreclosed. Um, and if you look at the amount of uh, uh, activists who have done a lot of organizing in the past in Russia, who have fled just that kind of exodus um, of Russian activism, of socialist activism from Russia, uh, you can see, yeah, that there is not, the organization isn't there. So the sabotage might be, again, I'll promise to give lots of examples of that, but the organization uh, isn't there. Um, so why is that? So sociologists like Grigory Yudin, who I, I think is very interesting, not always right. So have, they have written that this Russian culture is thoroughly depoliticized today. Um, and this is very different from Ukraine, which has had two democratizing revolutions in the past 30 years. It's very different from Belarus even, where the opposition to the 25, 27-year 20, yeah, 25, rule of um, uh, Lukashenko uh, uh, has actually kept his war ambitions in check substantially and has united in a really interesting way despite uh, having so many different sort of political um, directions. So in, in what appears to be a democratic process. So I'll also try to contrast this with the situation in Belarus, which because of their own dictator presents some promising cases for um, some promising ways that this could go, some promising possibilities. All right, so roughly the depoliticization in Russian, I'm sorry if I'm saying very obvious things right now to you, it's been explained roughly like this. So through censorship and repression and election theft and media influence, Russian authorities have reduced mainstream political life to a matter of cynical performances of power rather than debate and contestation. Um, and these processes look different at different time points. Um, for example, uh, the scale of corruption of democratic reformers in the 80s, in, in the 90s, these people who had been the sort of, had carried the democratic promise um, with, that, with them and then turned out to be 
incredibly easily bought by corrupt officials, by corrupt businesses, made enormous quantities of money. Today they're in media um, or in politics uh, still. So that kind of betrayal is sort of a consistent, a consistent pattern that the people who make the promises, who seem to have, uh, who represent some kind of democratic hope, betray their principles. Um, we can think also of the dissident movement just earlier. Uh, again, uh, uh, a situation where a lot of these people have ended up sort of gravitating to the far right um, after having been thoroughly, supposedly committed to democracy. Um, so, cultural studies scholars view this late Soviet era that I've described these dissidents, these democratic reformers, uh, as crucial to understanding today's politics. Um, and it's not only about the fact that Putin is a direct uh, product of this, it's also in general how in Russian culture you had to reserve your sincere ideas for discussion in private circles and underground groups, um, while public politics um, and even public dissidents were regarded with incredible, an incredible amount of suspicion. Um, so, and that proved to be again justified right, by that betrayal that happened not much later. Um, so, in fact, um, and we have a lot of sociological studies of how this phenomenon looks, the uh, good Komsomol uh, youth uh, uh, organization member uh, speaking at the meeting saying all the right things and then in private making fun of you know, everything. They said that's kind of the model of late Soviet life, this retreat into the private, uh, 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 away from a sort of sincere politics, but the mere performance, the mere like cynical performance of, um, you know, so socialist uh, 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 commitments. So you can see it in the sort of ordinary in the interviews with ordinary Russians who lived at this time, and of course among politicians too. Um, you have to perform a certain kind of thing, and that's the that's the sort of late Soviet uh, model. So, in fact, demographers believe that distrust in institutions and interpersonal distrust in general has always been higher, um, has been higher in Russia uh, than in Ukraine or Belarus in the past uh, 30 years after the fall of the Soviet Union. So this is the climate that Russian socialists and other activists operated in before Russia launched this war on Ukraine and painting with a very broad brush, uh, because there, is, there was a lot of activism, it's very diverse and different, but painting it with a broad brush, you might say that it's about restoring some democracy to these uh, hollowed out social institutions. So for environmentalists, forcing environmental agencies to deal with the will of the people for uh, park or for, you know, not to have pollution in the rivers or something like that. Uh, for uh, activists in the penal justice system, bringing cases, uh, uh, organizing uh, protests that have to do with getting these courts to obey the Russian constitution. Um, and of course in electoral politics, running local representatives, uh, um, supporting Navalny, um, dealing with school boards and 
sort of housing boards and things like that. So trying to bring some democracy into the system. One, an accelerationist might argue that this is just merely strengthening a system that's corrupt from, from within. Uh, so there are certainly activists who continue to do that work today who still believe that there is a need for uh, representative, that we need to you know, run uh, local candidates for, uh, for various things. But there is also a new wartime phenomenon that was totally marginalized in pre-war Russian activism, which is that they are en masse turning to sabotage. So since February 24, 2022, there, are, there have been many new oppositional groups that have emerged um, in Russia, and I'll talk about a few of them here. The feminist anti-war resistance, uh, stop the freights, or stop the trains, I guess maybe is the easiest one, easiest translation. Um, the combat organization of anarcho-communists, the Legion of Freedom for Russia, and many others. And politically, they range from socialist, um, uh, feminist socialists, to anarchists, to liberal and nationalists, and even white nationalists. Uh, and their visual media also represents these kind of differences. They propose new political subjectivities that are at their core anti-war, but also then, right, uh, uh, like, uh, like uh, have this additional sort of Okay, so these political differences, notwithstanding, these groups resemble one another in something in uh, their use of sabotage, their endorsement of sabotage, uh, and also their use of anonymity and promotion of this. And I would say, uh, looking at how important visual protest and representation, political representation, sort of social representation, was in pre-war Russian culture, it's interesting to think about the new um, necessity to work with anonymity on so many levels if you are still uh, an activist uh, in Russia. And so that's, uh, uh, that's uh, this new anti-war, these new anti-war groups, they try to demonstrate that there is a broad leaderless movement disrupting this war effort and they're proposing essentially a continuum between protests that sort of are about communicating opposition and being visible, and that's a lot of currency hacking, writing on money, uh, and uh, street art and things like that, obviously pickets, um, all the way to direct disruption. So these, they say, the way they represent it, are part of the same space and are done by some of the same people. Um, and that direct disruption can be the damage of government officials' property, uh, sabotage of army recruitment, and of railway supply lines. And in doing all of this, um, uh, the, in doing this work, this kind of thinking about the political spectrum, widening the political spectrum, they of course normalize and seek to legitimize sabotage. Uh, and increasingly we see it being endorsed by liberal oppositionists who would uh, uh, otherwise, in the pre-war years, have considered it uh, un, incommensurate with their image of electorability, elector, electoral uh, sort of uh, uh, persona, right? Uh, now those same people are talking about sabotage, talking about the anarchists committing it. Um, and I'm not obviously a movement theorist, as you can tell, but I do see this 
I, ha I do, we can, I think, look at the history of Russia and see this phenomenon where previously impossible to kind of imagine radical terrorist practices become increasingly part of a mainstream uh, field of vision, mainstream sort of something that is happening uh, everywhere. It's something that people are talking about rather than sort of hushing. So uh, the feminist anti-war resistance, I actually want to share. Um, I had slides. I thought I'd be able to show them to you. If you want to see my slides, you can go to tinyurl.com, tinyurl.com slash sabotage Russia. And I'm sorry to say that the most, I'll, I'll say that again if anyone needs that link. You're welcome to look at these slides, all of them are wait for me as I try to go through them and I'll sort of jump around and try to describe also what I'm talking about. So tinyurl.com slash sabotage Russia. Are people able to access that? Yeah, yeah you got it. Okay, great. Um, so that first group that I want to talk about, this feminist anti-war resistance, uh, they're actually the most visual, uh, uh, the, the group that's most oriented toward visual protest, visible protest, but I actually have only one picture and that's the first. That's the first picture. Uh, they formed the day after the war started, um, and they organized many of those demonstrations that we saw in the first days of the war that we uh, were hoping and wishing would become larger, would become a mass phenomenon. They were really, really small. Um, and uh, today, though, this group is a really broad network and encompasses a lot of different types of activism. A lot of Russian uh, socialists, uh, Russian feminists work with Ukrainian refugees who've been forcibly brought into Russia. Uh, they try to get them uh, out. Uh, so that we see a lot of the, uh, the members of this group who are already abroad um, are also working in refugee resettlement centers. Obviously, they share a language, so that makes it much easier to, to do that kind of work, um, to do that mutual aid work. Uh, and they uh, organized uh, a national sick out, like work sort of stoppage, I suppose, um, with a long standing radical workers' rights group called Anti Job. Um, they help protesters find legal assistance. They help soldiers evade army service and um, deployment. They help anti-war youth resist uh, patriotic education in Russia. So they do a whole lot of very different things. And then their social media is also a really important part of this. It's where they educate uh, their uh, audiences who seem to be a lot of them new people who are new to politics uh, um, based on the kind of contributor letters that they publish. Um, they educate them about the history of radical activism, they talk about feminism, they explain what socialism is. And so uh, it seems that they've been able basically to grow this, to grow this audience. Um, they get letters from, you know, pro provincial like workers in the provinces who are dealing with um, forced labor essentially in their uh, uh, army, uh, like weapon building factories, things like that. So they really are a fascinating um, hub for what's going on right now. A very much opposite phenomenon, completely disorganized and spontaneous. I said that I would talk only about organizations, but I actually need to mention this uh, other thing which appears, which is also highly visible. Um, 
and isn't unlike much of the feminist anti-war resistance in terms of demonstrations, visible protests, isn't confined to the cities. On the contrary, it appears to be a provincial um, phenomenon. Um, it's uh, attacks on army enlistment centers. So maybe you've seen some of this in the media as well. There have not been that many of them. I think at least 25 and under 30 at this point in the past six months, not very many. But it is a, a, the most obvious possible uh, anti-war, one of the more obvious anti-war uh, actions. It's got a long history in, uh, in Russia, um, and it seems to have increased, especially in May, with the fear of spring deployment. Um, and some of these attacks did manage to burn down the entire sort of an entire office worth of deployment records. So really making a huge difference for this region where uh, uh, you know boys were being mobilized to go to war. Um, some of them only caused like minor damage to the windows or something like that. So uh, they're uh, they're clearly done by uh, um, people who appear to be amateurs. Most of these uh, attacks. Um, and even though there are channels that spread sort of slide decks on how to commit an arson against an enlistment center, uh, it seems like these are individuals acting alone. Most of them did not get caught. The people who do are, uh, you know, just some of them are anarchists. A couple have been white nationalists, which I think is interesting. And uh, many, most, most uh, like the largest number of these people who have been caught appear to be just new to, pol to, to like political thinking, essentially radicalized by this war, um, who hadn't expressed much of an opinion before. Um, there are groups I want to talk about that are sort of highly localized and are helping Russian soldiers, uh, soldiers in Russia. Of course, they're, we're, I'm mostly talking here about ethnic minorities um, uh, who are being uh, in, in the largest percentage mobilized in the provinces, so the groups now quite well established that are helping them evade that military um, deployment so much so that we see actually organized resistance among soldiers to being um, deployed, but you know an, an entire uh, detachment or battalion refuses to uh, to go, um, officers refuse to go. So this is this is new and recent. Um, and historically, this kind of army resistance, this at these attacks on military recruiting centers, um, these uh, the resistance of divisions and detachments against being deployed to uh, to war, that is a story from the war on Chechnya. So this is uh, a direct reference to like that anti-war resistance. I think it's important for these for the activists who sort of try to explain what's going on with this grassroots uh, um, uh, sort of sabotage that, it, that they explain this is part of our history. This isn't something that we're just inventing from scratch. Um, and I'll talk about railway sabotage because that also has a long history in Russia. So actually it was a Ukrainian official, uh, former official who's very popular in Russian oppositional circles uh, who, uh, and who is an advisor to President um, Zelensky, uh, who called for a total railway war in Russia and Belarus in March. And then in April, we saw the first 
uh, uh, group emerge on social media who announce that they are railway partisans. They are railway, essentially, guerrilla fighters uh, in Russia. So they call themselves, uh, uh, they, they actually call themselves Stop the Trains or Stop the Convoys. Um, but this kind of moniker of railway partisans uh, most recently was used by Belarusian, is being used by Belarusian groups since 2021 to uh, harangue the Lukashenko regime. Uh, and uh, maybe to give you a few time points, so Stop the Trains, who's sort of the only group out there that has announced themselves, says that there are about 20, that said in May that there were about 20 other groups also sabotaging railway lines all over the country. And this, um, by now, they think it's 50. And that's partly based on their communication, which they don't try to seek out, uh, in fact, but also what they understand doing this kind of work and seeing how much, uh, how, uh, what it takes to organize something, like something of this scale where uh, 20 train, 20 freight wagons or something like that are, you know, totally turned over, um, uh, or there's a fire or a bombing or something like that of these train, of these railway lines. So when they um, sort of came out and talked about themselves, stopped the train, said that they, in May, again, they said that they're about 40, they're fewer than 40 people and they're about ages, they're ages 16 to 57 in their group. So again, interesting to think about who is represented in this group. They're otherwise completely anonymous, um, and we only um, we only know about these. Uh, we only know which derailments to consider uh, for acts of sabotage, rather than uh, just the general neglect and falling apart of Russian transit systems, because they say that they because they say so. So a cynical viewer of this would say, this is all fake, and they would have a strong case to argue that. Um, uh, but and some of this research has already been done comparing uh, the, railway, the derailments that have happened in the months leading up to the war that happened last summer, let's say, to compare. Um, uh, and there's, it's not anywhere near this these numbers that we're seeing today. Um, so something is happening, and maybe all of it can be, or almost all of it, really some things are clearly uh, bombings and things like that. But some, some, most of it, you might say, is about, you could say is about neglect and just general sort of degradation of these railway systems, but it's hard, hard to prove when you're looking at uh, 80, 80 cases um, not just of attempted but successful uh, derailment and disruption of freight transit uh, all over the country. Am I talking for too long? Is this my yeah. okay? Um, the and there's obvious symbolism in these railway attacks. Uh, so the Russian army supply lines are stretching further and further into Russian territory. They need to bring um, troops from further and further out uh, and um, uh, with the manufacturing difficulties that they've been having, right, building things in remote, far-flung factories, getting them all the way to, uh, to Ukraine. So it's an increasing source of anxiety for officials, and we can see that in the way that they respond to these 
uh, derailment. But historically, too, the railway has always been connected to, mili to military uh, expansion, to military activity and to expansion for Russian czars. Right? So they actually built uh, railways in order to support a 19th century war in Crimea um, uh, and uh, to settle Siberia in the 20th century. So this is how the railways got built. And now there are supposedly 50 or so groups sort of dismantling this, um, uh, targeting these uh, railways um, and opposing this, this mm, trying to create fissures in this picture that Russia is a unified, uh, enormous uh, uh, country uh, whose support for the war is unmistakable, whose imperial uh, ambitions are shared by uh, all of its regions and territories. Right. So in a way, the Russian, the, these railway partisans are trying to make holes in the regime's ruling ideology, which many have described as kind of Russian world, this idea of Russia bringing the uh, a Russian world, Ruski Mir, to its um, uh, occupied territories, to the places where it wields influence, uh, bringing stability. Right? This is a core piece of the Russian world vision, as espoused by Putin, developed in part by Alexander Dugin, which maybe is a name that uh, rings somewhat familiar to people as a major uh, propagandist and ideologist of the post-Soviet uh, regime, and of course there's many others who've contributed to this, but a kind of idea of the special civilizational mission that Russia has, um, uh, that's the bringing the Russian world unity, stability, sovereign democracy, a strange um, contradictory term. So I mentioned that stop the freights, uh, that stop the trains declared that they're inspired by the Belarusian example. And this Belarusian railway war is also worth um, thinking about. Uh, it provide, it has its own unique features that have not yet emerged in Russia, but are possibly a way that these things could develop. Um, Belarusian activists began mobilizing for railway sabotage in 2020. And by a recent accounting, by the Oppositional Union of Belarusian Railway Workers, they could potentially claim as many as 158 disruptive actions between October 10, 2020 and April 13, 2021. So these, this is that wave of protests against a fraudulent election by which Lukashenko managed to hold uh, onto his seat of power for another untold number of years. Um, mass protests at this time Mostly, and this is, uh, I think, represented on my slides, you can take a look, mostly a womanly face to these protests. Um, uh, they're uh, women on the, marching on the streets, mass demonstrations by women, very beautiful young women, often represented in the Im images sort of captured by the media, wearing white, carrying red roses, and... Um, the railway partisans represent, I think, a very different sort of masculine, masculinized division. And you can see that also on my slides. These are screenshots for some of, from some of their YouTube, YouTube videos. 
so different sort of protest protest subjectivities emerging um, that feminized um, protest that protest that's about virginity purity whiteness if you wish uh, is a really popular form in Russia and Ukraine uh, and Belarus and you see it again when you look at that feminist anti-war resistance sort of picture it doesn't protest obviously doesn't always look like that but it, this is a very stark compelling image it was really important part of the Ukrainian Maidan uh, revolution too, the presence of women, of beautiful women, um, the use of wedding dresses almost to talk about purity and motherhood. And in a way it's an, it's a, it's a um, galvanizing, a mobilizing um, visual form because it speaks to something, to paradigms that people can understand, that, that are, people are moved by, right? How can you uh, trample on these mothers and so on. Um, so, railway partisanship looks very different in the Belarusian space, it's distinctly mas masculinized, um, and uh, that's that sort of almost like video game, action, like sort of action film aesthetic that they have in some of those slides that you see. Uh, that's the, the sort of one way in which the Belarusian partisans appeal to the public you know, seem to convey to them we're recognizable, we're not just these extremist, you know, fringe radicals, we're actually just heroes, contemporary popular culture heroes, essentially. And the other way that they sort of explain themselves is, of course, by referring to uh, Belarus's own national myth, right? So I mentioned this uh, civilized Russia's civilizational sort of program, the bringing the Russian world, this Ruski Mir to other, uh, to its uh, territories, um, and Belarus has its own sort of national myth of this, of being a partisan republic, um, of having made this enormous sacrifice to keep the Soviet Union, to preserve the Soviet Union, to preserve the Russian Communist Party uh, and the Russian cultural capitals uh, by, uh, uh, through its acts of enormous daring and courage, um, resisting through guerrilla warfare the Nazi encroachment into um, these countries. So uh, the Belarusian section of this, uh, I hope, am I talking too long? No, go ahead. Okay. Um, the Belarusian, uh, the Belarusians probably constituted the majority of something like a 300,000 uh, person force of partisan, uh, uh, partisan detachments um, working from within to sabotage the uh, Nazi uh, to, to sabotage the Nazi army and railway sabotage was a core part of their success a crucial uh, part of this story about uh, resisting World War II um, and Lukashenko has actually his regime uh, has actually used this myth in really interesting ways uh, to justify their relationship with Russia, which otherwise you might call a colonial, uh, a colonial uh, um, exploitative relationship, but to talk about the great sacrifices of the Belarusian people, um, uh, to talk about this unity between Belarus and Russia, uh, this partisan sort of republic myth is often uh, mobilized to help to help him, you know, manage that. Um, Part of the railway partisans appear to be presenting an alternative interpretation, right? Uh, it's not about statism, this partisan history that we have. Our World War II history is about 
like emancipation and spontaneous grassroots resistance to the state. Right? And it's true that partisan uh, warfare was often was not necessarily uh, committed to partisan uh, sort of fighters weren't necessarily committed to the Soviet Union. In fact, uh, had created sort of their own little spaces of resistance, uh, even to Soviet, uh, even to Soviet rule. So this is the sort of history that they call back to. And uh, in fact, the Belarusians, them, the Belarusian railway fighters, they call themselves storks are flying. Um, they have said that they, they've, they announced in May also, they announced in May that they crossed the border into Russia um, and claimed nine attacks on Russian railways. Now, on Belarusian territories, they conducted something like 80 uh, derailments in the months of, in the first five months of the war. So, again, pretty substantial, um, pretty substantial sort of work. The Belarusian uh, opposition to Lukashenko isn't, of course, only these kind of fringe, um, uh, this kind of, you know, sabotage activity. What's interesting about them is that the liberal leaders of the opposition, so Tsikhanovskaya, Kalesnikova, they even endorsed um, that sabotage. They talk openly about it. They say that this is what's needed. Uh, they work with um, defectors from the Lukashenko regime, so essentially for, former security force, uh, uh, security forces officials uh, who uh, engage in massive leaking and hacking of the Russian government. Uh, and so all of this is like in interesting ways working in concert and partly from abroad but partly from within, uh, within Belarus. And I think it's where potentially the Russian opposition could uh, end up in that kind of unity where they actually make a difference. Indeed, the, um, this opposition to Lukashenko managed multiple times to entirely take down the railway, Belarusian railway system and basically stop all transit, um, but especially the transit of military convoys, Russian military convoys through Belarus um, into Ukraine. Uh, and so this is, their work is really why Belarus has not been able to move very much uh, uh, weaponry into Ukraine for Russia, which was initially the plan, uh, and they're still trying to do. Okay. There's nothing like that masculine, like that sort of masculinized, like macho representation of Belarus of partisans in the stop the trains, the Russian. Uh, railway sabotage movement. On the contrary, they actually represent themselves through these images really like in interesting ways sort of re-inscribed uh, into their narrative of sabotage, these images of trains like just totally collapsed, rolled over on their sides, um, rail, uh, rails like exploded or something like that. Uh, and this is you know, I think about partly about continuing that visual protest that I talked about in the beginning, right? So, also creating a different media media image, a different form of communication. Okay, I'll talk maybe about a few more of these groups, and then I'll be done. Um, the uh, combat organization of anarcho-communists emerged with this war. We didn't know about it before, but they've claimed that they existed for years. And I have a hypothesis just based on 
um, the text that they sort of represent themselves with, that they might actually be um, basically anarchist journalists and sort of activists who had kept some sort of who had been in the movement for a while, but who have gone underground after the start of the war. Um, they say that they have existed for years. They kind of refer to the main, not mainstream of the Russian anarchist movement, but something like its founding texts, its important internet um, sources. And they have been the only group so far to actually speak to the press. So you can see interviews with them in English where they talk about uh, giving one of the few coherent narratives emerging from the Russian opposition about why we should resist this war. Uh, because other narratives, and I'll, you'll see that in a second, in the maybe last or second to last example that I'll give you, other narratives sort of get confused um, and end up sliding into a sort of Russian nationalism. This is about Russia protecting its little brothers. So we, we still see that discourse in the opposition. Uh, this is about uh, Russian uh, ethnic identity being about peace rather than about war. So still uh, sort of searching and grasping for those ways to or organize a Russian anti-war uh, uh, identity um, because of, uh, and to give it some coherence. But the anarchists, of course, no problem for them to represent that they are opposed to the regime. Um, so, and part of this too is this um, historical strength of ties between Ukrainian and Belarusian uh, and Russian anarchists. So, uh, uh, they've historically fled to one another's countries and hidden there, fled trials and things like that. Um, uh, and what's interesting, um, and yeah, I think what's interesting uh, again about the combat organization is that now that they have this. In, much larger audience than they've ever had, than the anarchist movement has really had in, in years since the Chechen war. They're again talking about uh, history and talking about sort of historical reference and re, uh, recreating a narrative that, makes, that will make sense for people. We have always had resistance to these wars, to Afghanistan, to Chechnya, to Georgia, uh, 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 to every one of these uh, encroachments. Um, and, uh, and that's similar, right, to the feminist anti-war resistance. I'll mention a few more. You'll see photos in that URL link if you're looking at that for something called the Le Legion for Russian Liberty or Legion for Freedom for Russia. Um, and those are uh, battalions of about two battalions at this point, according to Ukrainian officials um, of... Russians fighting on the side of the Ukrainian armed forces, former soldiers who've, or rather not former, they are soldiers who've defected, Russian soldiers who came to the Ukrainian, were deployed to Ukraine and who defected. Right? And so um, much of what this Legion for Russian Liberty is doing is giving a specific, giving soldiers uh, and officers, Russian soldiers and officers, a specific way to think about this identity of the defector. Right? Um, to, again, not just to historicize it, but then also uh, to um, create some new ways for people to understand themselves. And this is done very much with a kind of nationalist reference to uh, Russian uh, cult, to uh, Russian um, peace, peaceableness, uh, Russian sort of resistance to fascism. Um, 
So all of these sides you can see are reclaiming and reinterpreting World War II uh, in fascinating ways. Um, maybe to I can speak more about the Legion for Russian Liberty if you'd like, if you have any questions about them, but maybe just to completely blow this picture to bits, uh, the somewhat coherent picture of Russian anti-war protest, I'll just mention one last group, which is the Russian Volunteer Corps. Um, and their sim symbols, their insignia, they're also a, de a, bet a detachment, let's say, of Russians fighting on the side of the Ukrainian army. Um, they are uh, white nationalists uh, and national socialists, um, and uh, and they use the insignia of uh, World War II era Nazi collabora collaborationist units, the Vlasov uh, army, if you remember this. Um, but they oppose the Russian regime, so a totally. In fact, you know, I mostly talk about feminists and anarchists and socialists here, but actually this picture is, uh, has this dizzying range of political perspectives. Maybe I'll end there in lieu of a conclusion. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.